1: <laughs>
0: The Elk Talk podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting
1: heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new Performance Protein Bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order.
0: The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, Go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the gator premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have.
1: And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk podcast
0: is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code Elk Talk, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop.
1: Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code talk to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Corey, how hot is it this afternoon in Idaho? Well, it depends what part of Idaho you're in, but the part I'm mm. in is uh, plenty hot even though it's probably one of the cooler places in Idaho. but oh, really? we're uh, yeah, we're in the low 90s so for mm. you know 5,000 feet in elevation, it feels plenty hot, but I'm not yeah. complaining because we aren't 105 or 106 like it is in Boise. so well, they deserve that weather down there, you know. They do. That's what my dad used to say.
0: About, you know, we live just northwest of Duluth, and people complain about the terrible weather in Duluth. He'd say, ah, those people deserve that weather. So, <laughs> I don't know what he meant by that, but I just, it, it's something I picked up. So, you know, I think those those Boise people, they deserve that kind of weather.
1: That's right, for whatever so, reason.
0: <laughs> yeah. If they all want to congregate in some little confine like that, you know, more power to them. Well, I. Are there, if I read the newspaper correctly, half of them are from California moved there in the last two years. So this probably isn't hot weather to them if they all came from California.
1: Exactly. Yeah. They're probably bringing the hot weather with them.
0: Yeah. There, there you go. Now yeah. you blame, I mean, in the West, folks, <laughs> I'm sure anyone listening who is from the West is going to nod their head and laugh. But it's absolute fair game to blame everything that is wrong the weather hunting pressure uh you know the viruses you name it on californians and non-residents that's right
1: and if they happen to be californians in they are the non- other it, yeah, yeah as i was gonna say in any state other than california then they're non-residents so yeah so well no. here in bozeman it's not that bad
0: it's 82 degrees today oh man i know I, I hate it when the weather is just beautiful in Bozeman because we already got too many people here. <laughs> you know, you, you you go out to the river to fish, you got to bring your own rock to stand on anymore. Man, it's like, geez. who's who's to blame for that, California? <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I and I, I would say that, but there's an awful lot of Colorado, Washington, and Minnesota plates here.
1: Yeah, we're getting a lot of Washington plates in Idaho too. A lot of people right. from Washington moving over here, huh? Yeah. You know, and just for just the, to clarify, we love people from California. It's just, yeah, we're joking inside yeah. joke of yeah. got to blame it on somebody. So let's let's pick on the yeah. Californians. Yeah, they're they're like this
0: uh, intangible kind of. Problematic fog that everybody just says, well, blame it on them. You know, yeah. kind of like my uncles, they blame everything on Obamacare. You know, <laughs> it'll and be kind 100- like you,
1: you, you blame everything on the cameraman.
0: There, there you go. I mean, that so there's just certain, the, certain things that that's just how it goes. You know, uh, I, I don't know if we even want to dive into this, but I'm going to because it kind of gets me to this. This discussion of people moving to the West, especially the Inner Mountain West. You know, right now in Wyoming, there's a task force that's talking about moving their draws from, you know, it it depends on the species, but they're really generous right now. They give anywhere from 16% of the limited entry elk tags to, I think, 25% of the moose, goat, sheep, and bison tags. And even a higher number of the antelope and deer tags. And they have a a council of citizens and legislators right now that are looking at cranking that down like every other state is and go to 90% for residents, 10% for non-residents. And I see it in in other state I see it in my home state of Montana when people complain about the non-resident fees for not, you know, compared to what we pay, or this discussion going on in Wyoming. And very often the the answer residents says, well, if you don't like it, move here then. You know, <laughs> that, that's how you that's how you get cheaper tags. That's how you aren't discriminated against from a percentage tax. Well, I'm telling those guys, why don't you just shut up, man? Yeah.
1: A lot of people are taking you up on that offer. <laughs> yes. Telling you agree with them, yeah, it's a bad thing. I, I, w- I certainly wouldn't vote for it, but man, that's uh, that's too bad. So, yeah, don't you know you, you better be careful,
0: folks, when you're saying, "Well, just move here then." <laughs> yeah, because they're coming in uh, droves.
1: It seems like right now.
0: Yeah, I mean Montana. We're getting a second. I mean, we've we've had one con- congressional district for a long time. Uh, we're w- our population has grown so much. We're getting a second congressional district, which that's a whole different story in itself. But it's an indicator of how Montana is growing faster than the national average because we stole a congressional seat from some some yeah. state. I don't know who, but <laughs> and everywhere I travel to the you know, quote unquote, wonderful hunting locations of the West, it's the same thing. It's like, where are all these people coming from?
1: Yeah. And who's who's Um, buying their houses? I mean, they're selling houses and moving here and buying houses and building houses. But I mean, where is where's the population coming from is there you know is there a boat from somewhere overseas that just arrived and people are filling up all those houses that are being sold or what Uh, i don't know but
0: anyhow that that is if you've ever spent a camp with randy newberg asking how the weather is is how you get into politics and obamacare (laughs) and the the, i just i'm sorry i uh remember when we were a kid and our parents bought us those little things what are they called kaleidoscopes (laughs) Uh, it starts out where it looks like one thing and as you turn it it just becomes this whole fractured view of all kinds of colorful stuff that's kind of
1: me when you ask me a simple question a fractured view of colorful stuff that is yeah that is (laughs) randy in a nutshell right there (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, well which one of these listener questions do we want to cover today any of them or do we've we got... just want to <clears throat>
1: jump into our own ideas yeah we've got some good stuff i say we jump into our own ideas and then uh, if we run short okay. on colorful commentary on fragmented ideas then we come <laughs> back to the list here oh <laughs> uh, i'm
0: sorry man i it it's a Monday. No, it's a Tuesday afternoon. What do you expect from me? right <laughs> My brain is fried from walleye fishing. It was so hot. It was too hot to fish. There's a country music song that uh-huh. says
1: "Too hot to fish" or whatever. Too hot for golf. Too hot. Yeah. to Fish. Too cold at home. Yeah.
0: Well, I I don't know about the too cold at home thing, but uh, <laughs> I I don't play golf. But this is the first time ever in my life it was too hot to fish. I went to Fort Peck. And I would have swore I was in Saudi Arabia or something. There's a mirage everywhere. It's like, I drove this far for that? Man. I'm getting the heck out of here. Did you catch that any walleye? On? Yeah, we caught a few. We caught more pike at Fort Peck than we did walleye. If anyone's a pike fisherman, would you go to Fort Peck and clean out some of those 10, 12-pound pike? They're like like flies up there. Wow. Yeah, they break your line. You know, toothy buggers just ping. It's like, well, they're running $8 crankbait. And uh, it's like, man, where'd they all come from? Well, so we we caught some walleyes, and then we went out locally yesterday and caught eight walleyes. So I had walleyes for dinner last night. My wife informed me I'm cooking walleyes for dinner again tonight. Wow. So, anyhow, oh, I was I was
1: but, excited about your cooler of dilly bars you're bringing to Big Sky.
0: Oh yeah, if you're going to be in Big Sky for the Total Archery Challenge, thanks to Loupold and RMEF, I've got 500 dilly bars coming. <laughs> 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 I called down there. I'm like, I want to talk to Karen. They're like, Well, she sold the joint last winter. I'm like, What? This is the third time now that someone sold that place. On wow. me And I I keep trying to buy it. And they got rid of the old manager, Salmon. He used to look forward to me coming and buying a couple hundred dilly bars. I said, I'm going to really double down this time. I'm buying 500. So, wow. Yeah. Well, I know we're going to be hanging bucket. out. Yeah. Bringing a whole freezer up there.
1: Do you so, have to be, a, do you have be, to be a kid to get one?
0: You got to be a kid or you got to sign up to be a member of the Elk Foundation or show me your
1: RMEF membership card. Oh, I'll bring my life membership plaque and I'll just sit there and eat dilly <laughs> bars all day. <laughs> uh, but all this hot
0: weather had, you know, you and I were in Ogden, what was it, two weeks ago, a week ago? I can't yeah, remember. It was a little over a week. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people were asking questions. We were all doing our own little breakout sessions. A lot of them were asking me questions about dry years and fires and, you know, do elk behave differently because of a year like we're having right now. And it's been the hottest year since I've, in in the 30 years I've lived in Montana, it's been the hottest year by a mile. I don't know if it's been that way in Idaho. Yeah. uh, what would Portland, Oregon have? Like a hundred and fifteen
1: degrees? Did it really? A week or so ago. Whew. Wow. Isaac was up in uh, Lewiston, Idaho, looking at the college up there last week and it was 117 there the day he was oh there. Gosh. Oh my gosh. But Liston's cool. been, I mean, historically, I think it had the hot spot in the state of Idaho from back in the sixties or something at like 121 degrees or some crazy thing. Mm. Um, so it's, I mean, the elevation there is not much above sea level and yeah. it's, it gets hot there. But uh, Portland, Portland doesn't see 115 degrees. No. If any place deserves it, they do, I guess. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Maybe everybody there will
0: move to Bozeman. So, and I can say that my son lives there, so I can heckle Portlanders. Uh, <laughs> but is it changing how you're approaching this season?
1: You know, it's not really, um, you know, our first hunt is going to, uh, I don't, have I, have I let the cat out of the bag yet on where we're going? I have no idea if you
0: have or haven't, you've just, all you've done is told me, Hey, you know, I need a camera guy here. I need a camera guy here. So so folks who don't know, I promised Corey that I'd provide all the camera guys he needed for this season for Destination (laughs)
1: Elk. That was a big mistake on my part. Big mistake. I was just talking to John, cameraman John about that about a half hour ago. I said, you know, Randy, uh, added up the man days that he was committed to for camera guys for this project. And I'm, uh, I'm going to have to beg for forgiveness for a long time.
0: Uh, it's it's going to cost. I, I, I'm i not sure what it's going to cost, but it'll be a lot. But <laughs> So because of that, I have to leave. I, I, I got to hunt the first week of season in Montana. Man. I never hunt elk the first week of season in Montana, but it's the only time I have a camera guy. I got 12 <laughs> people who work here, and the only
1: time I can find a camera guy that isn't with you is the first week of elk season. You know, I I would feel sorry for you if you didn't have a moose tag and a goat tag in your home state of Montana. And yeah. m- maybe that had a little bit of influence of when you were uh, hunting, but you always wrap me out.
0: <laughs> so I it's it is changing my uh my ideas of what I'm gonna do. Yeah. And uh oh, and I was driving through central Montana, spoiler alert. Can we tell people I'm going to be hunting Central Montana? You—it's up to you. That's that's your spot. I would never tell them where you're hunting, but well, I'm pretty sure they're going to look around and say he's not around Bozeman. <laughs> so anyhow, I'll be hunting in Central Montana, and it is as dry and brown as I've ever seen it there at the end of June. Mm. I mean, I I went snooping around and places that used to have lots and lots of water have no water. Anything that isn't down in some draw or gully that runs east, northeast, north or northwest is just torched right now.
1: So it's changing what I had for a plan. Yeah, I mean, feed so, sources, it sounds like, are, are drying yeah. up. You know, water is critical. And if there's no water, but even in yeah. places where there's water, there might not be a nutritional right. feed source. So.
0: That, that's
1: the thing I'm seeing is that
0: there's still water in some of the creeks that run around and, you know, little springs here and there. But the food, the forage, is way, way different. There, there are places that are so torched off that normally you'd see grass up to your knees still. It's just brown. Mm. It's like the the locusts show up here. What the heck? So I know in those big places where occasionally or frequently I'd see elk in September. I don't know that I'm going to see any elk there in September because the the cows are going to be where the forage is, and in a dry year like this, the forage isn't in some of those places it used to be.
1: So, well, if I didn't if I didn't know you better, I'd think you were kind of setting up excuses for why you didn't fill your elk tag already. Absolutely, but, <laughs> better, better.
0: <laughs> that, that's always the case, Corey. When I drew the tag, the first thing I, when I applied for it, I'm like, I wonder how many excuses are there available for this tag. But, <laughs>
1: So, oh, believe no, me, it, it, I've, it, I've got my list already too. So yeah,
0: it it is changing what I'm going to do. But you 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 kind of headed me down that path by saying, "Can we tell the audience?" Yeah,
1: that's up to you. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I don't remember if we have told them or not, and they'll find out eventually. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll just tell them here and. If somebody okay. repeats it, we'll know that they've heard it on the Elk Talk podcast and nowhere else. So we'll at least know where the rumor started. But okay, uh, we we decided to change things up a little this year, and with it, you know, obviously we're changing the format of Destination Elk, and we thought, you know, if we're going to call it Destination Elk, let's let's go to an Elk destination, and it might not be a destination people would think of when they think of Elk. So unfortunately Mm. i didn't draw a pennsylvania elk tag yet if i do it might change our plans again but (laughs) uh donnie and i are planning on hunting roosevelt elk again this year and while that might Mm. not come as a surprise uh we're planning on doing it in alaska so you're crazy i agree it's probably one of the if not the toughest elk hunt uh Success-wise, yep. terrain-wise, weather condition-wise, uh, transportation-wise, everything about it is... Logistics, yeah. weather. Yeah, we look... I mean, I'm I'm going to end up buying eight of those little power banks to take with us so that we can charge batteries because we will not, for 10 days, have any access to anything with electricity, cell coverage, motors, anything. Hmm. It'll be... Uh, Camp on back and great big backpacks and hiking to find elk. And great big bears that are brown colored. with the, Their claws are about as
0: long as my fingers. Yep. And they're brown hungry bears. that time of year.
1: More, more wolves mm-hmm. than elk.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it'll be an adventure. I bet, you, uh, I bet you where you're going, there's as many brown bears as there are bull elk.
1: Yeah. Oh, I guarantee. There might be as many brown bears as there are elk. There's yeah. just not a, a high population of elk there. But
0: so, can I buy a life insurance policy on you guys before you go? Nah,
1: no need to. Maybe for the camera guy, but <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: uh, you notice how
0: I said when you, I volunteered all my camera guys for this year, this September.
1: Yeah, I told you, except for that hunt. You did, yeah. Poor cameraman John. He got roped into that one too. So, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that'll be exciting. It will. Um, so we're not. I mean, honestly, there may still even be you know glacial snow in in the high country there. Uh, it, we we certainly aren't worrying about a drought there. But uh, yeah. when we come back to Idaho, we're we're gonna hunt a, a new area in Idaho that we've never been to before. So oh, really? Yeah, I decided to mix it up here too, and thought you know what? If we're not gonna fill an elk tag, we might as well have excuses like I've never been there before mm-hmm. and. Yeah. Well,
0: I've been to this spot I'm going to before, but I haven't hunted it with my bow since 2011. Ah. Because I've always been busy doing something else. And I finally said, when you called me and said, Hey, would you guys help out with this? I'm like, Yep. But I'm going to do this because this is what I want to do.
1: Yep. So I am. Yeah. I've never even, I've never even stepped foot or driven through the area that we're, we're going to go to, and I actually just, really? as we're talking here, just got a text from Mr. Bo Beatty saying he's uh-huh. got llamas I can use that week, and let him know how many, so. Wow. The, the plan's coming together. Hmm. Well, I I told him I was going to take llamas also, but maybe I'm not. That's, I mean, it it adds an element when there's no feed and no water. uh, Yeah, that normally I would have done it in a heartbeat.
0: Yeah, because it's such a cool place to go, but I don't know if I am because I don't know where I'd water them. Yep. So I'll, I'll I'll make that decision before the time comes that's but,
1: right now we're gonna yeah. actually do a little scouting either on our way to or our way from big sky next weekend and put foot in there mm-hmm. at least and see what the water situation's looking like yeah well i for me back to the some of the questions that we got
0: in ogden people were asking me how does it affect my planning uh the first thing i i always say is are they migratory elk or non-migratory elk Uh, and when you get out in central and eastern montana these aren't real migratory elk so they're looking for food sources that they can depend upon and they move to different food sources with great regularity well central and eastern montana is a super forage abundant location most years so you got elk dispersed equally across the landscape Well, I can tell you right now that they are not going to be dispersed equally across the landscape this year. There's just too many places without much to eat. The good part about that is that means I can eliminate an awful lot of the unit. But the bad part of that is so will most the other hunters. Yeah. So Montana, who never adjusts their tag numbers up or down, gives the same number of tags no matter what we're all going to be crammed into these pockets where we know there's good forage because there are pockets of good forage even in a really hot dry year but uh, i expect a lot of company yeah a lot of company so
1: yeah it definitely but, concentrates the elk but then that concentrates the hunters and then that disperses the elk and <laughs> 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 it, it, yeah it's just a game there that you know, that's what I'm looking at now, just I've been doing a bunch of e-scouting and trying to get a feel for where the pockets of timber are going to be, if, you know, if it continues hot and dry, where where the water is going to be most likely uh, to stay, the, the last places where it will go, but then also looking at it saying, hey, if we have llamas, let's take advantage of that, because there's a lot of people that mm-hmm. they're going to be forced to hunt within four or five miles of a road, and if we can find right. water back in six or seven miles and go back there and camp it's just gonna the the elk will still be concentrated there just won't be as much pressure from other hunters hopefully yeah and this this will be an interesting year to use the tactic we use with llamas
0: is llamas don't need hardly any water at all whereas horses do yeah. So we hunt places with llamas where we think there's enough water for llamas, but not enough for horses. Yeah. So in doing that, we hardly ever run into horse hunters. So I don't know if that'll change this year as the water, the the average water levels or or moisture or, or water availability maybe is the term, if if that changes. So. Yeah. But uh, when we were down there doing that thing in Ogden, you were given serious calling instructions. You had everybody in
1: your breakout session playing the flute pretty well in a short order of time. Yeah, I would you no, pull and, that? And off? maybe, maybe just backing up a little bit because people might be confused why we were in Ogden or where Ogden oh, yeah. even is. But uh, no, Randy and I participated last weekend in Mountain Ops put on an event called the Elk Summit. And it was their first annual. Uh, They've already actually got a schedule in place for next year, so it'll happen again. But uh, it was a a really cool event. And to be able to be a part of it, you know, it it just reiterated to me how serious some people are about elk hunting, you know. And there were people, they paid a a good deal of money. I think it was $1,750 to attend. And Mm. on top of that, I think almost every state in the United States was represented there. It had Florida and Kentucky and Virginia and Michigan and Illinois and Ohio and you know there was Alabama. You you taught the the Alabama
0: guys. You taught them so well they won the calling contest. I know. How how often
1: does that happen? Somebody from Alabama wins a calling contest. But yeah, they uh, they were good. But no, it uh, it was fun. My my breakout portion was on. Uh, elk calling and having a group you know of of say a hundred people breaking it into five groups that were never more than 20 people. And in fact, some yeah. of the some of the groups only had 12 or 13 people. So it gave me yeah. a chance everybody there got got elk calls. and you know, typically when you're doing a seminar, You can't have you can't be instructing people. You can't even let them take the calls out of the package because it just turns into chaos and you lose control Mm -hmm. really quickly. But uh, yeah, we were able to put it in, and I I went around one on one with each person, making sure they could make a sound first, and then took them to the next step of learning to control the sound. And it was amazing. Some of these people that had never even had a a diaphragm elk call in their mouth before were sounding good enough in that two-hour period. To, uh, to be able to confidently go out and call elk. So that was fun. The ones we struggled with the most, there was one guy that had such bad gag reflex, he can't even brush his teeth hardly. <laughs> um, and I, as soon as he said that, I thought, well, there's no hope for you. So he uh, he wasn't able to participate because he tried putting the diaphragm in a couple times and before it even got on his tongue, he was gagging and spitting it out. Wow! Uh, but beyond that, the guys that struggled the most were turkey hunters. And you would think, really, why is that? Well, it's blowing an elk diaphragm is completely opposite from blowing a turkey diaphragm. And the way I teach people to use the diaphragm is you know, when you hear an elk bugle and you try to replicate that sound, you throw the diaphragm in, and the first thing you're going to do is you want to get to that high note, and Mm -hmm. you figure you just have to blow harder. Because, you know, you you think of the concept when you take a bladed grass, you pull on both ends of it and blow across it. The vibration from your air blowing across it is what creates that sound. Mm -hmm. And as you pull tighter on that bladed grass, it changes the pitch and it goes to the the higher notes. If you blow hard, you keep the the bladed grass the same tension and just blow hard across it, it's just going to blow out and you're going to lose the sound. You're going to have no control over it at all. But that's what a lot of people do when they use an elk diaphragm is they put it in and they try to change the pitch with with air pressure and airflow. Mm-hmm. And so I taught all of them, you know, from the beginning, I want you to use your tongue. Very little air pressure. Use tongue pressure to change that pitch. And the turkey guys, when you're making a turkey sound with the diaphragm, you're hitting it with with hard and short bursts of air to make the, the hen cluck. And your tongue is really not having a lot of control over it's just going up and slapping against the latex and then you're forcing a whole bunch of air across it so for for elk calling they had to completely change their mindset on how to make sounds Uh, and then the other thing is we would start to do the growl you know that growl down in your Mm -hmm. throat where you get that real deep resonating uh just bass sound out of that bugle at the beginning of the end And they wanted to roll their tongue like they do when they're turkey calling. And so they would sit there and and roll their tongue as they're hitting the latex. And you could tell that they were rolling their tongue and putting a lot of air pressure into it. So we had to really Mm. work to break them of of those habits to get them. And they were great turkey callers, uh, but they just had the the wrong Mm. instruction for using an elk call. Well, I'm... Uh, I'm not a turkey hunter,
0: so I don't have that developed bad habit as an excuse for my bad elk calling.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I Um, wanted to come and sit in 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 your class. Uh, Eric Chester was there from Hushin, and uh, mm -hmm. Brian Call from Gritty, and Ryan Carter from... Yeah, he's uh, probably one of the top guys for finding big bulls and he just spends so much time and effort finding that but i wanted to sit in on everybody else's session because with that group of of guys there there were certainly things that that we could learn even after 35 years of elk hunting those guys have the same kind of experience but we didn't get to do that so no no i i was amazed that how
0: diverse the audience was and i did like how small the groups were because yeah. you get a big group and it, you get pretty generic questions i don't know if each person gets a lot out of it whereas you get these smaller groups and the first thing i did was ask them where you're from are you primarily a rifle hunter or primarily an archery hunter and then i I had kind of the path we would follow based on how they answered that. Yeah. And, uh, I hope they got a lot out of it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And and for me to, to always get better at communicating what I do or how I do it is, you know, what do they say? If you want to become a better student, try to be a teacher. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) So, you know, in, You really gotta think all this through and give it the what would I say? The perspective of how do you really say what you're trying to say. In other words, make it as as digestible as you possibly can. And that that always helps me when I force myself to do that.
1: Well and I look at, you know, someone like yourself and there are a lot of people that have as much elk hunting experience and success as you and I do. Uh, I think the difference is is being able to, first off, even understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because for a long time, I didn't. I mean, I, yeah. I was successful before I knew why I was successful, for sure. Uh, but then being able to make it relatable and, and understandable to someone who doesn't have maybe any experience, it's hard to do. And it took me a long time to to get to where I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm saying it in a way that somebody else is going to be able to understand and have an aha, that makes sense to me because it's, it's a, there's a big difference between being a successful elk hunter and teaching successful elk hunting. And what you said there was, if you want to be a, a great teacher, you know, you got to be a great student and vice versa. If you want to be a great student, you've got to you know look at a, a good teacher. But, um, it's, it's so important to approach it from that perspective of having no experience, but then to be able to put your experiences into it, it's really hard to sometimes separate the two. And that's one of the things that I think I've always looked up to in you is your ability to take 40 years of hunting or however many 70 years of hunting or whatever you, <laughs> you have and, and make it relatable to... <laughs> to people that have never even dreamed of hunting before and and make it understandable so that they can feel confident in their knowledge that they have to be able to go and do it for the first time. Well, the the wonderful part about having 70 years of failure
0: tied up in 40 years of hunting is you got an (laughs) awful lot of mistakes that you can tell people, don't do this. Exactly. Don't do that and uh one of the topics we got into was with migratory elk uh how migratory elk will use their transition range during a dry year like this and you know the i i you saw me up there on my butcher paper on my easel you know i i must think i'm a an artist or something. I draw these little <laughs> stick men and these really bad diagrams, but I enjoy it. it helps me teach better. Uh, maybe in my other life, I I felt like John Madden w- ha- was on to <laughs> something when he used to have his little telestrator when he first started doing that on football games. Yep. Uh, but when I do that and I talk about transition ranges, I, I try to make it as simple as possible. Transition ranges are where the hunting happens. Very seldom are we hunting this high, high summer range, and very seldom are we hunting the low, low winter range. So all of a sudden we've got maybe 30% of the unit crossed off where the there might be some out there, but the densities are going to be super low. Yeah. So let's focus on these other areas. Well, once you start focusing on those other areas and you have a really warm, dry year like this, You're going to want to look higher and higher because those are the places that still have the the best quality forage. It may not be the high quality it would have been in a really wet year, but relative to the entire transition range, you're going to find the best forage probably up higher depending on where you're at i'd say in most migratory herds that's the case so if you can focus on the top third of the transition range now you just got rid of two-thirds of the other 70 percent all of a sudden you're you know where you got to go and look to find these elk gets to be a lot smaller and a lot smaller so
1: to to add to that you know and, and i think you're Exactly right. That's that's kind of my philosophy for this season as well, that the elk are probably going to be up a little higher getting out of the heat for, for one thing. Um, the better feed is is going to be up there. But even taking it back a, a step, talking about that transition range, you know, the, the bulls have their high elevation summer range. And right. then most of the elk are, are concentrated, at least relatively close, in their lower elevation winter range. And the rut happens typically somewhere in between that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've always looked at it as where are the calf elk born? And usually the cows, you know, once the feed starts becoming available outside of the winter range, they start moving up in elevation and usually don't make it up as high as the bulls go. Uh, but they make it up mm-hmm. higher than than where the winter range is for sure. They've got good feed there. The They've got good cover so the calves are protected when they're born. But then usually they don't vary your range too far from, from where that area is. You know, they aren't going to move too much from where the calves are born to where the bulls come and find them in that transition spot in between the winter and, and summer range. Uh, but one other factor I look at is what was the spring weather like, you know, as far as when, mm. when did that feed start greening up out of the winter range? How hard yeah. of a spring, you know, as far as snowfall and things did we have – was there still snow up in the high country that would hold the cows down a little lower than where they wanted to go? And this year, all of the the factors are pointing to elk being a little higher in elevation, and that aligns perfectly with, most of the places had a lighter winter with snow melting a little bit faster and elk moving up into higher elevations a little sooner. And I think we're going to see that some of the calves were born a little higher than where they might usually have been Coupled with the lack of feed and water at those lower elevations, I I would say the exact same thing. Look a little higher than where you might have found them last year or where you might think they're going to be this year.
0: Yeah. And so when I when I ask for a poll of people, hey, are you archery or rifle? What's, what's your interest? And when they say, like one group, only one of the 10 or 12 people said they rifle hunt. All yeah. the rest archery hunt. So I said, all right uh I'll I'll save a few questions for rifle hunting but in archery season we're going to cover the first three periods the early season of August the pre rut and the peak rut and those are mostly the periods when we're archery hunting so I I got to saying all right just like you explained earlier that the bulls they summer in their bachelor groups up really high And August 10th, plus, minus, whenever, you know, through the 20th, they rub the velvet. And within not too long, those bachelor groups disperse and become solo bulls going down near where the cows are. And as quick as those bulls disperse and head towards the cow, to me, that's the triggering date of where we went from early season to pre-run. Yep. And you got these you know, a lot of times you'll have the younger bulls, the two and three year olds who are in there thinking, Oh boy, look at me. What, (laughs) you know, my lucky day. Uh, but that comes to an end within, you know, a week or 10 days. And once those younger bulls start getting displaced by the older bulls, that's when we switch in my mind from the pre rut to the peak rut. And people always try to say, well, what day is that? Well, it's never a day on the calendar. It's not like every bull elk wakes up on September 10th and says, "Well, the calendar says it's peak rut today." You know, let, let's all behave differently. It, <laughs> it, it changes by latitude, by elevation, by so many things that you know. It's it's plus or minus a couple of days here or there, and so I I try to point paint the picture that. When you're hunting the pre-rut and the peak rut, in some in, to some degree, you are almost hunting a food pattern because the cows are looking for the best food year round. So they're gonna go to where are these places we normally have this rutting activity and where is the best food. And to the human eye, it all looked green up there on that northeast facing slope. Well, guess what? The cow elk she knows which little corner of which drainage has the best forage for that two-day period. And I try to, uh, th- this is, what, so you know how I said I got to make this simple? So my wife has me help her plant her flowers every spring and summer. I get so frustrated because Why can't we just plant them in mid May and they're good for the year? Well, some of them peak at this time and some of them peak in June. And I don't understand the calendar she's got there of which ones happen when. But in my mind, I'm thinking this is why cow elk are moving from this little drainage, moving three quarter mile and staying there for five days. And then they move four miles and they stay there for five or six days. Because the primary forage, the Premium absolute best forage they're seeking doesn't stay present all summer long. They have to, uh, a cow elk has to get the absolute best amount of nutrition for whatever energy she expends. She can't waste this. She can't be inefficient. So she is dialed into the fact that, you know, the last week of June up on this, high end of this transition range or summer range, this plant in this forb was the absolute premium nutritional peak. But as these plants dry out or other ones uh, succeed them in, in being even more nutritious, these cow elk are moving all over the place, finding that best forage on that day. And don't, uh, so the point of all that is don't let the human eye be the judge of what they're looking for. Yeah. Let them tell you what they're looking for. Yep. So that was going into that. I I was getting some puzzled looks by people like, I'm not sure I follow this. And then when I use the analogy of my wife Well, you know, at this elevation, this plant is really good the first half of June. So (laughs) the house, the front of the house is going to look kind of yellow then. But then when those die out, I want you to put these purple and orange ones out there. Those do better when it gets hot in July. (laughs) Well, that's kind of, I hate to say it, but that's kind of what a cow elk has to do. She has to move around to find whatever plant is the best forage for her at that time. And that's what they do. That's that they they don't randomly just say, "Oh, I think I'm going to stroll around out here." They have they don't do anything by accident or without purpose and intent.
1: Yep. They don't have the luxuries we do. And efficiency. They aren't going to waste yeah. a whole bunch of time and energy to do what they know they they need to do. They're going to go to where they need the food. They're going to find the food, and as soon as that food's gone, they aren't waiting around there. They're going to go and find the next best place yeah Yeah, if you want to read some good reports on this the starkey
0: experimental forest has done all this and they have their own elk herd there that is accustomed to people but these aren't you know these aren't genetically changed or you know bred for this characteristic these are this is a wild herd of elk in an enclosure But they're so accustomed to people that the scientists can walk along every day and say, oh, today they're eating this or they ate that. They watch the plant that the elk eats. And I'm not saying that what they're eating in Oregon will apply to what they're eating in New Mexico or Montana. But when you read that, you will realize how much variety a cow elk has in its diet and how selective it is every day of, oh, I'm looking for this. I'll walk by other stuff that's so-so, but I want this because this week, this forb or this really nutritional thing has bloomed and I'm looking for those. And they see it in their observations. They see it in the fecal samples that they take. It's, it's just, incre- I don't know, maybe I'm too much of a nerd, Corey, but I really, I read that stuff and I'm like, why didn't I discover that this, this should be like the first thing you have to read before
1: you. You—they even sell you an elk hunting license. <laughs> no, don't do that because it'll make people that much better of an elk hunter. <laughs> <laughs> like there's there's some good information mm-hmm. in the Starkey experiment. I mean, they look at yeah. you know cow calf survival rates. They look at which bulls are doing the breeding, um, yeah. and I think you know I, I hear people. Oh, the, the elk ruts getting earlier and earlier every year. We went out opening weekend, the elk were screaming, and by the third week, they were done, the bulls were away from the cows. Um, and you look at, okay, the amount of time that a cow is pregnant doesn't change. It's, right. you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's like <laughs> a human... Gestation younger.
0: period is the same. Yeah,
1: it might vary from five days, plus or minus five days from from cow to cow, but... Uh, overall, I think the average is what, 242 to 245 days, something like that. So we're looking right at eight months plus five days. And if you see a a brand new calf elk on June 1st, you know within a day or two that that cow was bred on September 29th. And Mm -hmm. I would say within five days of that cow being bred, that's when the peak rut really kicked in and started. So you know, it ties in almost perfectly. You look at when the, the calves are born, you do the math backwards on that for a gestation period, and then you look at the fall equinox, and I would bet, you know, nine times out of 10, you're within, that, that peak rut is kicking off within three or four days of that fall equinox. Mm-hmm. So yep. this year, I think it's, what, September 21st, 22nd, somewhere in there. Yep. Um, I would say most of the cows are being bred that September 26th through October 3rd, 4th time frame. And again, like you said, it varies by latitude, by area. It depends on feed. It depends on the, the herd demographics, the bull to cow ratios, all of those things. But in a nutshell, you know, we're looking at that last week of September is usually the peak rut and... You know, there's, there's not a lot that can be argued about when the calves are born, and, <laughs> and they're born at that time for a reason. You know, it's, it's, uh, that's when the highest rate of survival is going to be for them. It's before the heat of the summer. There's ample feed. Um, there's plenty of forage for them to hide from predators until they're big enough to escape on their own. I mean, all these things, you look at the factors that go into it, and these elk are born at a very specific time, which correlates to the the cows being bred at a very specific time. Yeah, and it,
0: it just it reiterates. I, I mean, you start talking about all that, and when you're getting into the part about they got to be dropped on the landscape at this time because there's more forage to hide from predators, and the, the nutritional plane for the cows is at a peak. It just reiterates, none of this is happening randomly or by accident. <laughs> you know, the, the cow who decided that she wasn't going to go into, you know, estrus until November, or the one who said, yeah, I'm going to go into estrus in July, guess what? All of her calves died. <laughs> and that, that trait didn't get carried on. Yep. <laughs> you know, that, that bad idea got... Eliminated.
1: She's wandering so. around on her winter range looking for a bull in July, and it, I mean, it's just, they got weeded out pretty quickly. Yeah. So, did you get a lot of people
0: asking you questions about uh, how to call call out in hot temperatures and full moon? Did you yeah. get many of those questions?
1: Yep. And uh, oh. you know, again, that comes back to I think the moon plays a little bit of a role in when they're bred which affects a little bit when the calves are born and all that. But yeah, we had a lot of questions. How do you how do you call elk in smoke? How do you call elk when it's hot? How do you call elk when there's a full moon? You know, a lot of great mm-hmm. questions. And like you alluded to, those smaller groups, I think people were more comfortable to ask a question. You get a person in front of 200 people and they're like, there's somebody in this group that knows that answer and I'm going to look like an idiot to them if I ask the question you in a group of 12 people and they were asking i mean very detailed very good questions and uh, it led to some great discussion for sure
0: yeah i was guys uh, talking yeah, cuz i got the same thing of well what do you do when it's 95 degrees out well, pray for, I'd spend most, most of my time praying for cooler weather <laughs> because, you know, again, all these studies, uh, it's a Starkey, uh, there's, there's so many of them out there, uh, when they talk about thermoregulation regulation in, in energy, a bull elk now has shed that beautiful red coat that you saw in July and by mid-September, He's pretty well this tannish, not quite as yellow and bleached out as he'll be in November or December, but his winter coat's starting to grow in, and he has more fat on him than any time of the year. So his requirements to thermoregulate at 90 degrees Fahrenheit is greater than what it is at zero degrees Fahrenheit. So when it's 90-some degrees, he is just not going to be out there being wild and crazy. Just
1: can't be as active.
0: Yeah, Right. It's going to kill him. He knows that. So if you get an after – how many times have you heard someone say, boy, after that afternoon thunderstorm came through, they must like thunder and lightning or something (laughs) because the elk went crazy. No, the temperature dropped 25 degrees. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> it's uh so a lot of those kind of things were asked and i i don't have all the answers but it was fun to to interact with people and and try my best to say well From a bunch of years of experience and the benefit of between my tags and all the elk hunts I get to help on in different locations and different seasons, I can tell you what didn't work on this (laughs) this hunt or that hunt, and
1: and try my best to to give them something that that was helpful. Well, not only that, just for me, that was the first event I've been to, uh, you know, as far as presenting information in person in a year and a half. And it was good just yeah, to get uh, back too. there and interact and have live questions and shake hands and and just mingle yeah. with elk hunters rather than being locked up and doing you know what we have done for the last year and a half through Zoom or Facebook Live or different platforms which are great but nothing can yeah. replace just that interpersonal interaction. Yeah. Did you get
0: a lot of questions, people? Uh, and I think they were. you know even 10 days ago we were all realizing how hot it's been and how dry it is uh you get a lot of people asking you about how smoke and fires and other
1: stuff affects hunting yeah yeah in fact i got to share my theory on an elk sense of smell and and how that's affected by smoke and how that sense of smell being affected by smoke affects their behavior which in turn affects our ability to call them in and yeah, we talked, uh, I think almost every group brought that up as far as, you know, there was somebody that had hunted last year. And like last year, the elk just didn't seem to cooperate. Calling was so difficult last year. and mm-hmm. Well, that theory being, come on. Oh, you, sorry. I thought, I think uh, I've shared it before in previous episodes. Well, yeah, but, uh, you have, but, uh, but it's this not episode, like everybody. I was going to say, since we're dropping a lot of gold nuggets in this one, uh, we'll share it again. But, you know, I just... And I'll share the story again of being in Arizona and walking by a dead beef cow and just how strong that smell was. It was it was overpowering. And I it made me think, I wonder if that's what we smell like to an elk. You know, an elk can smell hundreds of times better than we can. And I don't smell myself unless, you know, I mean, if I've been out for two or three days sweating, I start being like, okay, I can't stand myself anymore but i think at that point i probably smell like a dead beef cow to a, to an elk and they rely on their sense of smell to stay alive so after two or three days the wind blows in the direction of an elk they know that guy hasn't showered for 3 days he reeks and he is dangerous so let's let's vacate the area But last year, you know, that smoke, I know for me, my sinuses, my throat hurt Mm -hmm. the whole time during elk season, just from breathing that. And, you know, you start hiking, your lungs burn more from that smoke being inhaled. And it has a a physical effect on us. And I just think with an elk's nose being hundreds of times more sensitive than ours, that smoke had to have an effect on their ability to discern danger with their nose. Hmm. And so you know, as we move in, and I just noticed we'd get within the the magic 200 yards. Which usually, when you challenge an elk 200 yards away, they come unglued and come in. And last year, every time we'd get close, whether we'd break a branch, we'd rake, we would cow call, we would challenge, bugle, whatever we were doing inside 200 yards, they seemed to push away and move up the hill another two or three hundred yards. And after several times of trying that, they just kept pushing away. And I thought, you know what? They probably realized that their nose is not as effective and they're going to get to a place where their eyes and ears are more effective rather than coming to us they're going to go back and wait until they get that visual confirmation which makes it really hard to to get in close to an elk hmm. that theory makes a lot of sense well, I, I told somebody earlier today on a on another podcast that I was a guest on. I said, you know, it uh, it's nothing scientific. It's just my observations. And he's like, that is all science is is observations. <laughs> and you know, you come up with a theory, and that's science. And he's like, that's exactly what you did. So, so yeah, it is scientific. Yeah. I'll, uh, it's a scientific observation.
0: Well, isn't a hypothesis an idea that gets tested, and if it gets tested and no better hypothesis is presented or it doesn't get dispelled, it becomes a theory. Absolutely. So, yeah. There's no better <laughs> no better hypothesis has come forward. So for right now I'm going with that theory, Corey.
1: Yep. And that makes All it right. science. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well
0: I've, the heat of July I, I wish that July and August would just go away Yeah, Can, can't we just go from middle of June to September
1: and I would be I, okay I, going from middle of May to September honestly and yeah no, but no, that middle, kind of bit, middle of May to middle of June does give us a chance to do a little fishing and to uh, yeah. get our gear in order and everything so. yeah yeah, I'm this is a year where
0: I'm feeling kind of bummed. I have one elk tag, which is more than enough, you know. I'll 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 create enough problems with one elk tag that I <laughs> I don't need multiple. Uh and I'll be on my son Matthew. He's got a late season hunt, rifle hunt in Nevada. And then we're helping a sweepstakes winner who has a post rot hunt in New Mexico. So I'll only be on three elk hunts this year. And in most years with help and other people and stuff, I'm usually at five or six. Yeah. So once again,
1: the, the fiddle comes out to play the sad song about Randy dedicating most of his fall to his moose and goat tag in the state of <laughs> Montana on the same year. So I think I could probably I sacrifice a, a week of elk hunting to accommodate those right. two tags. But the good news is, while I am moose hunting, you know, you you
0: stomped that that area with me for a week one time, right in the peak of the moose rut. So. I'm yeah. not going to have you there to call for me so the odds of me calling a bull a day in is close to zero
1: but at least I know some exist there I was going to say unless so. the density of elk in that area has changed I don't know that you'd be able to find enough to call in a a bowl a day so <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: well i can try i'll use that see you gave me another excuse yep, Corey. That's a, I'll look out here. <laughs> uh, what other kind of things are are people asking you about these days going through our reader questions we've we've had quite a few people asking about burns and such and i think that's an anticipation of of uh the fact there's going to be a lot of (laughs) burns. There's going to be fires, yeah. Or maybe it's because they saw how many burns there were last year. I mean, last year was, So if I'm hunting an area that burned last year, if it got any precip at all, I'm going to go at least hunt the fringes of it. And and again, when we talk about hunting burns, we're not talking about finding a burn that's three miles by four miles and plopping yourself right down in the middle of it. (laughs) We're talking about where the lowest intensity of the fire is, is on the edge. And these little pockets, because a fire, it kind of burns, you know, I always say it's almost like your hand on the ground. If you drew a diagram around your hand, there's little fingers that burn and there's a big core area that might be like the palm of your hand. Don't go hunt that core area. That's going to be the longest time frame before that returns back to productivity go on these little fingers and edges that's one it's close to bedding covered. they feel way more comfortable there and they don't have to travel as far to get there and the nutritional value right on those edges are the highest nutritional values you're going to find
1: so yep. and you just think about uh, those the needs of an elk they've got feed water and bedding security yeah. And when you look at those fingers, typically there's a reason the fire didn't continue going there. It's often a, a north face, uh, a creek bottom, mm-hmm. something where there's more moisture that stops that fire from spreading in that direction. So you've got water yeah. right there. You've got the disrupted canopy of you know all the stuff that didn't burn. All of a sudden now there's open canopy. So if it doesn't burn hot, which on the fringes it usually doesn't burn as hot, you're going to have uh, the nutrients, the minerals that are in the the burn residue, the ash, that provide incredible uh, opportunity for vegetation and good lush green vegetation to come up. And like you said, that traveling, they can get that vegetation right on the fringe. The The moisture is usually right there for watering right on the fringe. And then bedding, they don't have to go very far into that canopy to to feel secure so those three yeah. things I usually look for and try to triangulate in close proximity the fire kind of does that for you on the edge of the fire so yeah yeah. what Randy said about the those fingers and the the edges is that's where you want to look Yeah, I mean occasionally I'll go to a place
0: in rifle season and I'll see some orange bass out two miles out in the middle of a burn <laughs> and I'm like if I can see you with my naked eye those elk can see you out there
1: uh but maybe they read or heard Hunt Burns. Yeah. Well yeah. But. Randy, Randy said for years <laughs> I've been hearing him say Hunt Burns and he's the smartest elk hunter I know, so I'm going right out in the middle of that burn. I'm waiting. Oh
0: <laughs> uh, don't don't do it, Randy said. <laughs> oh gosh well i i just think uh, it opened my eyes when when you can interact with you know say a hundred hunters in that intimate of a setting over two and a half days uh you really get a lot of questions for me anyhow i came home with a ton of my own notes of be thinking about this this is what's on people's minds this is uh you know a topic that's that's of interest to them and so i've i've incorporated a lot of it in the content that i'm i'm filming right now that if i ever get my act together and quit fishing Corey, i'm gonna have a few videos for your university course that'd be Uh, great i know you're probably saying yeah right
1: i've been hearing that for about two months now where are they randy (laughs) uh but I, i've I got just, the same problem tyler's been on me to get the audio versions of the three latest modules that we added uh, done so people can listen to the audio book while they're driving rather than reading and i'm kind of the same it takes a pretty good commitment of time to sit down and read through that and then edit the audio and all that so don't yeah. don't feel i'm not judging you there i'm i'm in the same boat so this morning we had a staff meeting here and Jess and David have four
0: videos ready for the course. And they kind of looked at me with this. We're not here to complain, but we sure could use your final review on these. <laughs> like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me dig out that email and find out where they're at. I'll get this to you. Uh, those, those are things we're, we're trying to do uh, that maybe add a little more of the, poster at late season kind of stuff to yeah. uh, to your course which since you never promote it I'm going to do it again Corey University of Elk Hunting can be found at elk101.com that's right we're
1: going to have to change get... the promo code instead of using elk talk we're going to have to change it to Randy you're you're a great cheerleader for that and I appreciate it Well, I you know <laughs>
0: a friend that like uh, if you ever saw Rocky one most people uh I'm I'm getting old enough now where when I say I saw the original Rocky movie, people think that, well, aren't most of those folks dead who saw the original Rocky movie?
1: <laughs> and um, I think Sylvester Stallone's just being propped alive with uh yeah, artificial but, flavor.
0: But in there he says, Friends do cause friends wanna do, Paulie, <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> friends do cause friends wanna do, Corey. You're not Polly like his brother in law, but you know, and I, I don't do a very good Sylvester Stallone <laughs> imitation, but for a lot of reasons, but uh, anyhow. No, so here, here, here's a question it. for you. Yeah.
1: Do you know what year Rocky 1 was released in? I believe it was 1970 77. You're close. November of 1976. Oh man. man. Well, look, it by the time it got to a movie theater
0: in northern Minnesota, trust me, Nothing premieres in northern Minnesota,
1: so you know if if people don't realize everything's digital now, so the smallest town can get the brand new release the day it's released. Back then, we used to have a roll of film that they would mail from theater to theater, and the big cities got it first, and the little cities we grew up in. I mean, we were watching Ghostbusters six months after it came out on film, and people were talking about it. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you go back to Big Falls, Minnesota, they still have, maybe the jukebox is still there at the local pub. Uh, and if you haven't ever heard of a jukebox, you put a quarter in there and you get to pick three songs, like A three or you know, <laughs> the, you know, G forty two or something. If you went back there right now, the Doobie Brothers and the Beatles would still be on the jukebox. <laughs> that there's Hank Williams Senior. That that's that's how
1: slow time moves where I grew up. So Not only that, but they might be familiar with the jukebox, but it might be one that's digital that you still put the quarter in, but it just pulls up the song digitally. That one probably still uses the old, uh, the old vinyl and pulls out a piece, oh, yeah. a, a vinyl oh, yeah. record and yeah. lays it right there and then puts it back in its place for the next person to choose.
0: Yeah. That was fascinating as a little kid. You'd look down through the glass top in this little arm. would go grab a vinyl, you know, little record and play it on 78 speed or something and <laughs> when it was done it had put back in that slot it's like that's that's a miracle yeah. that whoever invented that should he must have been president or something yeah. but yeah I, that, that was the original version of the what, what's the apple product that does that the, you can put all your music on something and they use an iPod. iPod before cell phones like a
1: <laughs> an iPod. iPod. Yeah. Those, that's a See, I'm a, I,
0: I, I,
1: they sell those anymore. Probably. I, I was going to huh? say those, those are pretty dated too. We're, we're into uh, being yeah. able to stream and download music right onto your cell phone. And all so, right, Corey, yeah. gosh, you know, I, at least I don't have a crank on the front of my
0: car to get it started. You know, I'm, <laughs> A little bit ahead of the game.
1: Uh, so, Man, look at us. We, we went from you yeah. advertising the University of Elk Hunting online course for me as a good friend, leading to Rocky, leading to Jukeboxes, jukeboxes and, and iPods. Here we go. i i tell you what uh,
0: when i cross the river i want to step on every stone in the creek man
1: <laughs> so you got it right there for me well i, I uh, appreciate your your uh, promotion of the online course and there is a promo code it's elk talk and it'll save you 20 dollars if you sign up and you can find out all about it at elk101.com and although it is what is it up to now 19 modules or something and 58 chapters or some ridiculous amount of information that's there Uh, you still have plenty of time between now and elk season to digest it but don't wait until august 15th and dive in and (laughs) expect to get a lot out of it so now's a good yeah yeah well before we turned on the mic
0: uh i told you i got my new hunting contact and people are probably because I I get this a lot. People say I saw an old picture of you and you had glasses. Do 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 you wear contacts? I'm like, no, I had LASIK surgery. Did you do you wear contacts or did you have LASIK or? or you just got good eyes?
1: I haven't had either yet, so I probably really? need it. I, I usually just memorize the letters when I go to get my driver's license <laughs> and <then laughs> rattle them off so I can at least drive without glasses. But I'm getting to the point where driving in, at night especially, my vision isn't as sharp as it should be. So I'm to a point yeah. where I at least need driving glasses probably, and it probably wouldn't hurt to to look at uh, something during the day just shooting targets and things it's you know things the pins and the target are blurry so it's hard to pick a spot but uh, i'm holding out wow.
0: i uh i on my hunt talk radio podcast i had my buddy tom say who's an optometrist here in bozeman and he's a fanatic hunter uh, every hunter in in town goes to tom because he understands all the all the problems that hunters have with vision things you know you go to some optometrist who plays golf or shuffleboard or something he doesn't know about blurry pins or <laughs> parallax or all that important stuff you go to somebody who, who hunts and then you'll get good uh good, good treatment so i, I had LASIKs in 2007 and my left eye has not adjusted at all it's perfect my right eye has adjusted for all the computer work us accountants do. So I wear a contact in my right eye when I shoot a bow. And uh, I got it just, I just got it updated a couple weeks ago.
1: I'm, I'm running out of excuses, Corey. Man, I was going to say, you shouldn't have mentioned that. You could have always know. said, you know, my pins were blurry <laughs> Um, no, I, I I I I'm just impressed how much of a
0: difference it makes when you can actually see the target crystal clear versus eh, it's kind of fuzzy. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a white ring down there. Yeah, all of a sudden you're like, oh, <laughs> that's what I'm holding
1: for. Uh, it yeah, makes such I'm, a huge difference. Yeah, when when your target is blurry, it brings out all sorts of bad habits because. When you you yeah. think your eye sees your pin in the target clearly enough that they cross, you're you're wanting to punch the trigger more than holding it on there and confidently knowing that the pin is on a spot on the target. Uh, it makes it really hard to you know your pin covers the spot you're aiming at, and when the target's blurry, you. You don't know for sure where you're aiming, so you'll get into a habit of putting the pin above where you want to hit and then real quickly dropping it and pulling the trigger. So sight you know, and vision is a a huge part, and it helps uh, a ton with your shooting form and and your shooting system that you go through, the process you go through when you shoot. Yeah. Well, some of the young people listening to this are
0: probably not— as cobbled up as I am. And they're probably just shaking their head saying old people, you know, <laughs> you can't live with them. Can't live without them. You know, you need them for entertainment, but uh, so someday everyone
1: will be there. And I, I uh, swore it would never happen to me. And, and it, I'm, it, it rem- I'm holding it off a little bit, but it's, I can tell it's starting to happen. I'll admit it. It's starting yeah. to happen.
0: So <laughs> it's,
1: Yeah. For me,
0: it's, it's just nice to only have to wear one contact because my eyes get sensitive to dust and everything. I I got to have these AccuView hypersensitive, whatever they call them, uh, contacts, and they work phenomenally well for somebody who has as sensitive of eyes as I do. And I, I I'm just throwing that out there that if you have a good optometrist or ophthalmologist, they might only have to fit you with one contact.
1: So, Interesting. You'd have to have two yeah. eyes that have different vision, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, so, some people, the solution s- is oh, you, you got to wear glasses <laughs> because
0: you got. Uh, no, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. So. You're kind of like a cyborg. Oh, I'm, I'm like a lot of things, you know, <laughs> uh, if I keep smarting off to my wife, I'm going to be like a halibut. She's going to hit me and both my
1: eyes are going to be on the same side of my nose. As, <laughs> I don't take her fishing more often. <laughs> uh, speaking of halibut, I'm uh, I'm going to Alaska fishing here in a few weeks. Yeah? Yeah. When? Uh, the first week of August. So that
0: that mean that uh well I'm not gonna be sharing any camps with you. I was gonna say we could have a halibut
1: one day in camp, but I don't think our schedules match up. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hmm. You never know. We might uh we might have a surprise visit to the somehow sometime and, all right. Yeah. yeah, I've never turned down a halibut in my life. Yeah, and I've never had walleye, so Really? Yeah. Never caught a walleye and never eaten a walleye.
0: Oh, man. Don't tell my wife if I give you some, but I'll try to sneak some
1: there. Uh,
0: My wife is the most generous person in the world. She'd give you the last dollar she ever had. But she will not share her walleyes with you. You got to be, this is like, you got to be blood relative and you got to be even her best blood relatives. I was going to say,
1: <laughs> I would yeah. I would share with my friends before I shared with blood relatives. Mostly. So. <laughs> uh. Uh. Well, how much longer do we want to sit here uh, and, and con- connect the dots? <laughs> I was going to say we're we've gone down a path of reminiscing about the '70s and and right. uh, things that just don't even relate to elk hunting anymore. So I think that's I usually know. our key to wrap things up and turn these gentle listeners to something more productive in their day yeah
0: if there's one last pitch i could make RMF just opened up a bunch of access uh, with them and their partners in oregon if you want to find out about it go to rmef.org and click on either the news tab or the where we do our conservation tab uh it's just remarkable. They're there over a million acres now of improved public access with them and their partners. So, Which is insane. How cool is that? Huh? Yeah. That's that's when we, get, you know, when we say the woods are too crowded, I get it. We all hate it when we show up and there's somebody at the trailhead that, hey, no one ever used to hunt here. and I've had the feeling. I know what people are thinking. But, you know, with groups like Army F, they're at least doing something about it yeah
1: and imagine yeah. how much more crowded it would be if that million acres wasn't yeah opened up right now so now if you're gonna yeah. be at the uh big sky or even i don't know i i'm you're gonna be at park city right for the total archery challenge yeah will you be there yeah i'm gonna be there we're you uh you better be we're doing a live podcast i was gonna right? say i think uh, we both had better show up for that one are you gonna yeah. have dilly bars there i don't know i'm gonna have a whole gunny sack full of gerber knives Well, excellent. I was just going to say... If any of the listeners are gonna be at Big Sky or uh, Park City for the Total Archery Challenge, that'd be a great place to sign up for a membership to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation because mm-hmm. you're gonna get a dilly bar or a or a Gerber knife. And yeah,
0: you get something. Trust yeah. me. I'll, I'll I'll figure something out in Park City. I just I just don't know where the nearest dairy queen is there. And I don't I won't have my freezer with me.
1: Don't you have an app that just shows you where the dairy queens are? Like pops I up do. and notifies you you're within 10 miles of a dairy queen and no i do have that
0: but here's the problem i uh, i have my freezer in the back of my truck when i go to big sky i'm flying to salt lake so i don't think delta airlines is going to let me check in my 54 quart cubic whatever it is or bigger (laughs) 540 quart freezer to plug in and i don't think the uber guy is gonna give me a ride to park city with the big freezer full of dilly bars so <laughs> i i haven't solved the logistics of that maybe maybe the folks at the park city resort have a freezer that we could use or something but yeah. i i it'd be t- a tragedy i mean it'd be terrible to have go buy 200 dilly bars and have them all melt because you didn't have a freezer Hoarded just getting up to I'd eat as many tr- of them I as I could. Say, before,
1: <laughs> it would be a tragedy to get before the stomach them. from trying to eat all of them before they melt. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. I, that wouldn't be good for my physique. I'm already, <laughs> this is, I'm so out of shape, Corey, from my whole COVID thing. I'm just, this is not going to be a good season for me. I, when When you can't hunt, or or can't hike for six months because of all your COVID things, all the calluses that you'd built up on your heels and your toes and the balls of your feet have migrated to your butt. And the first couple of hikes you go on, you tear your feet up again.
1: So um, uh, I don't know if anybody's keeping track, but – uh, you've got a long list of excuses just in this episode alone. So. I know. Well,
0: I, I, I'm telling you, with age comes more legitimate excuses.
1: Yeah. Either that or you just get better experience, you know, you get better at making them up. I mean, you talked about how great it was to have a contact in your right eye, but I can already see it. You know, I didn't realize it, but not having a contact in my other eye was causing some depth perception issues. And I mean, you've got excuses just running, flowing free here. Yeah, well,
0: they're, you know, like armpits. Everybody's got a couple and they all stink. I just happen to have
1: a lot more than a couple. <laughs> I was so. going to say, I appreciate you coming up with all these because it uh, <laughs> doesn't make me tap into my creativity. I can just mm-hmm. use yours. Oh, you should run with
0: our crew. Just wait till, if, by the time I drive from here to wherever my first hunt will be, uh, uh, let's say my moose hunt, it's two hours away, I'll have enough excuses for the whole season not just for that hunt but for the whole season. So, and and it's it's kind of how you set expectations with the crew. You you start kind of hinting at well this could go wrong or that or this so that they're they're like, oh man, we're really going to have to give it our best effort. I mean, it sounds like this—this this is on the edge already. we are we This could be a tragedy. <laughs> so I already got a mentally geared up that we we can't be sloughing off here, guys. This is like 100 percent all day, every day. And so they show up and they give this great effort, and we sometimes fill a tag. So <laughs> it's it's all just you know the psychology of of expectations so yep and kind of the safety net of having an excuse if you screw something up I, that's and what it's all cam- about <laughs> having a camera guy there when you screw something up is like the best safety net you could ever have <laughs> <so. laughs> poor guys <sighs> Uh, all right, Corey. Should should let let's let them go for real this time. Huh?
1: You know, we did give them some pretty darn good nuggets. I think you know, as we were going through, I thought, man, we are really firing on on all cylinders on good information here at the beginning. So, you know, wow. we had to we had to kind of dilute air at the end and balance things out, so they, <laughs> so they didn't come to expect it every episode.
0: From yeah. us, so. Well, we got nothing else to do for the remainder of the year on these podcasts. There's, that's right. The audience is going to be like, that's more. more more information than I
1: thought those guys had. So the rest of the <laughs> podcast aren't going to be worth a hoop. What so. are we, 70 some episodes into this thing, and we got as much out of this mm-hmm. one episode as previous 70 some? So,
0: yeah. Yeah, probably.
1: But <laughs> well, folks,
0: appreciate you being here, Corey. Stay cool down there. Don't go down to Boise with all the
1: riffraff. I have no plans. I, I, to. Ju- I just run off all of our Boise audience. I'm sorry, <laughs> folks. I'm just joking. Uh, I'm sure that they come to McCall and Donley, so they uh, they're probably up here right now enjoying the cooler weather and the plethora of water that we have to jump in here. Yeah. Well, you just keep them there, okay? Yeah, yeah. I, it was, I, the, you know the this is an unfortunate
0: tragedy. Yesterday, uh, a guy got killed by grizzly bear here in Montana. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, by Orlando. Um, it's our first one of the year, um, and it's sad to say, you know, our first one of the year because that implies that I'm often there's it. multiple. Yeah, and and there there are some years, and uh, but. Uh, One of the things of people who come here, uh, their fear of grizzly bears is border. it's, It's one of two places. Complete ignorance of, can I go up and pet it and get a selfie with a grizzly bear? Or it's so much fear that they come to beautiful Montana and they hang out on Main Street. And, uh, so I know we've did a podcast on, on grizzly bears and hunting in grizzly country before. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the real deal out there. Uh, if, if you want to tell all those people from Boise that don't go to Montana, cause there are lots of grizzly bears, no one's going to be mad at you for <laughs> dropping that. But, I, and it's, and it's I, not untrue. No, I, but whenever I I say something like that, you know, in a tragedy like yesterday strikes, it's like uh, I shouldn't even talk about grizzly bears, but they're pre- they're present on the landscape. We got to talk about it. Yep. You know, it's it's part of what we deal with. And when I was doing the seminar, see, we said we we're going to let them go, right? When we were doing the seminar uh, down in uh, Park City or uh, uh, Ogden, I told people a sanctuary is any place that discourages hunters and it can be boundaries. It can be distance. It can be topography. It can be all these things that discourage people from wanting to hunt there. It's the low pressure areas caused by some factor. And in a large sense in parts of Montana, probably parts of Idaho and parts of Wyoming, grizzly bears do create lower hunting pressure. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, I I hate to even be talking grizzly bears when some family's dealing with the tragedy like they are, uh, but it's it's a reality of our landscape. It's a reality of elk hunting in certain parts of the country. Yeah. Uh, and where where you're going on your first trip this year, you have a density of brown bears like these are these are like grizzly bears on steroids. Yeah. Uh. I, I'm I think you need a psych check before you go.
1: <laughs> I probably need a psych check for about half of what I do, but you know, there and we we're we're cognizant of, of the risk there. Uh, my hope is that there's enough salmon in the rivers that the bears are down at lower elevations looking for salmon. Uh yeah. we're gonna we're gonna plan on hunting instead of hunting the really thick stuff at the you know, lower end to the top 80 percent of the mountain uh, we're going to hunt the high country and we're going early the the first of september for a lot of those reasons so i mean a lot of our planning Mm -hmm. does take into consideration what would be best what would be the safest and uh, we're hopeful that that we've done what we need to to really minimize any chances of any drama yeah well folks if you are out in the mountains in grizzly country be bear aware uh do
0: this do the right things uh even if you do all the right things occasionally you know there's bad luck and bad yep. circumstances but uh go out there have fun and be safe yep. i guess is what we'll leave them with and Back. i'm really i'm i'm done rambling Corey. all right well we'll let him go right now all right thanks folks yeah thank you